You are listening to Seeking the Hidden Thing with Kryptos. Technique, propaganda, and the left liberal nature of the West. To be a true conservative would mean being opposed to the West itself. At least the West since the Enlightenment. Why is this? Because the operating system of the West is technique and progress. Introduction to Technique Once you read Jacques Ellul, it is impossible to escape the conclusion that reforming the systems and mechanisms that govern our society, both in the public and private spheres, is never going to fix the problems of our society. We are, down to the very core mythology of our culture, a technological society. It colors how we look at the world, how we approach problems, and it fuels our constant desire for solutions. Humans have always been tool-using and technological, but at some point a shift occurred. Once, we were the masters of our tools. They were a means to express our skill, creativity, and humanity. We have since become mastered by them, such that we are ruled not just by technology and machines, but by technical systems and technical thinking, such that we see all problems as essentially technical in nature, and they depend not on us as human beings being better, but rather on the perfection of the technical system. Alul helps us to understand this transition and what it means, not just for politics, but for human flourishing in general. When we think of technology, it is natural for us to do so by focusing on devices and machines and their effects upon us. There is merit to this. Examinations of the effects of, say, the automobile and mobility, this machine, brings our useful avenues of inquiry. What is the meaning of the car? Commonly today, we consider the effects that computers, the internet, smartphones, and social media have upon us and our society. Again, these are good questions to ask, and the answers are important to know. But Alul argues that the technologies we implement are actually less important to understand than the ways of thinking that give rise to the making of machines. In fact, Alul argues, modern technology is the final step in a chain that begins elsewhere. He calls this way of thinking technique. If there's one thing that I hope you take away from this piece, it is an understanding of technique and technical thinking. We must understand that technique is very much an integral partner to the idea of progress. Progress is achieved through technical advancement, not just in the area of machines and devices, but also through the implementation of systems. Essentially, the idea of management that has its roots in early time and motion studies is the application of technical ways of thinking to social and organizational problems. Scientific management, as it was once called, is essentially a technical enterprise. If you wonder what the link between a phenomenon like woke capital and government bureaucracy is, it is at this level of a sharing a fundamental worldview. All problems are essentially technical. Social problems are technical. Business management problems are technical. Once it is determined that there is a society-wide problem, it is only natural to harmonize all technical systems in order to manage the problem. Alul says, Technique has now become almost completely independent of the machine. 
In truth, he takes it a step farther. The machine is entirely dependent upon technique. And the machine is now not even the most important part of technique. The truth in this last sentence is the one most necessary for us to see and interiorize. Technique and technical thinking has taken over all of man's activities. It is not just a thing of productivity or science or the making of machines and devices. Technical thinking is what integrates human beings into a machine society. Technique both paves the way for the machines and integrates humans into the use of the machine. Technical thinking constructs the kind of world that machines need. What kind of world is this? It is a world that values efficiency. It wishes to bring efficiency to all human activity. We must be ever more productive. To achieve greater productivity, everything must become more efficient. To become more efficient, every human action needs to be standardized. Humanity is made to fit the world of the machine. Humans become an extension of the machine, an efficient and productive cog in the great technical system. Technique is the model, the ideal, and its attributes are valid once and for all, for everyone. Our social mythology understands technology as the product of scientific discovery. We have this mental picture of scientific advances being made that then find practical, even commercial applications which can be marketed to buyers. This, argues Alul, is backwards of how it actually works. Everyone has been taught that technique is the application of science. This traditional view is radically false. Technique comes first. What Alul notes is that most advances in scientific discovery first required a preceding technical advance that then made possible the new areas of inquiry. Technique and technology make possible the experiments that then allow scientific knowledge to advance. He goes so far as to say that when the technical means are not there, science is completely unable to advance. It simply does not happen. Without technique, science has no way of existing. If we abandon technique, we disown the domain of science and enter into that of hypothesis and theory. Without the technical means to test a theory, scientific theory remains just that, theory. In fact, scientific inquiry has been so superseded by technical activity that it is impossible for us to think of science at all without the notion of technical application. The two, science and technology, have essentially been collapsed into a single thing. Science is the means to technology, and technology is the means to do science. In the ordering of the two, the purpose of science is to realize technique. Science is the handmaiden to technology and technical thinking. Because technical thinking is the foundation of scientific thinking, and scientific thinking has become the aspiration of all disciplines, Technique comes to be the foundation of every aspect of society. What Toynbee calls organization and Burnham calls managerial action is technique applied to social, economic, and administrative life. Alul argues that Burnham's managerial revolution is the societal expression of technical thinking extending itself further and further into society. The influence of technique is the standardization of everything. Standardization means resolving in advance all the problems that might impede the functioning of an organization. What Alul wants us to see is that the thrust of technical thinking is to remove human variance 
from the outcome by standardizing all activities through policy, through computerization, through methodology, through systems. The idea is that all activities can produce standardized outcomes regardless of which human beings are within the system. We can standardize outcomes in manufacturing, customer relations, teaching, as well as social problems like poverty and racism. Everything has a technical solution. Once the processes of the techniques are refined, we can garner the outputs we desire, regardless of whether those outputs are widgets, student learning, ending poverty, or winning wars. All problems are technical in nature, and all problems have a technical solution. We can be confident that the final result will be the technique will assimilate everything into the machine. How did the technical society emerge? As we noted already, technique has always been with us as human beings. We are tool-using creatures. So what changed? When did we stop being the masters of our tools? What caused us to assimilate ourselves into the technical machine? To answer this, we need to look back at the origins of technique. We begin with tradition, which is itself a form of technique. The difference is that these traditional processes are inherited and modified slowly under pressure from circumstances within the confines of a body social. They are held within the collective memory of the people. They are passed on through hands-on instruction, one tool user to another. There is a culturally embedded notion that this is the way we do things around here. This way of doing things works for this particular people in the context of their lives. It is the way that is best for them because it is the way that holds past and present together in a cohesive whole. Today, Technique has become autonomous from the social context. It obeys its own rules, its own laws. Technique renounces tradition, attempts to replace it and supersede it. Technique does not rest on tradition and the social context. Rather, today's techniques rest on previous technical processes. Another subtle change from the traditional use of technique to today's technical system is that when techniques were the result of tradition, and a specific social context, the point of the techniques was the ends they produced. Once techniques were liberated from tradition and became something based only on themselves, the ends become only tangentially important. Because you are building one intentional process upon another intentional process, the means, the process, becomes the true subject more so than the ends. If a process is not generating the desired ends, you then work to improve the process. Do this enough, and the process becomes the point. I mean, how many times have you endured in a management context where the most part of a decision is that we focus on good process? Making a good decision, the desired outcome is secondary to everyone feeling like they've been part of a healthy process. This is the technical mindset at work. This is one part of why reforming the system is a futile effort. The point of the technical system is the technical system. The point of government bureaucratic systems is the bureaucratic systems. The idea that we need to get our people in to run things misses the point of both government and business systems. The point is the system, not the results. Efforts to reform the system simply reinforce the legitimacy of the system and the technical thinking that underlies it. This is what is this what the decisive thing that led people to abandon the traditional 
socially embedded use of technique for detached rational techniques, while it was largely the quest for greater efficiency. It is this quest for efficiency that turns a spontaneous or traditional phenomenon, an unconscious one, and brings this into the realm of clear, voluntary, rational concepts. In this regard, something as basically human as friendship or marriage can be turned into a set of techniques that then can be standardized and applied universally. Lul argues that the Greeks, from a cultural perspective, a society obviously brimming with knowledge and skill, rejected technique because they valued self-control and a certain conception of life over the brute force that technique represented. To use tools was in fact the highest form of human expression. It was a form of self-mastery. The idea that use of tools would supersede personal mastery of the tool would have seemed alien to them. In this light, Alul argues, we have to understand that the technical movement rose up in an environment where the culture had already withdrawn significantly from the dominant influence of Christianity. As Christianity receded, technical thinking filled the void that the Christian faith once did. He argues that the Christian faith had traditionally impeded the emergence of technical thinking. There was a number of features that it had suppressed Christianity condemned the love of money and luxury. Renunciation was seen as the spiritual ideal. Attachment was seen as hindrance to the development of faith. Eschatology, the understanding that Christ would return and bring an end to this world, was more important than the achievement of practical ends in the here and now. If the world was going to pass away, there was not the felt need to perfect society today. Without this desire, there is no need to perfect technology. The question, is it righteous, was asked of every attempt to change traditional techniques and modes of production. Change, when it happened, was slowly introduced and subordinate to its effects on the social and spiritual climate of the people. Alul argues that the process of breaking with this worldview began with the Protestant Reformation. In its attempt to return to primitive Christianity, it ended up undermining the social restrictions to technique. From the time of the Reformation, the next decisive step in the development of technical society was during the French Revolution. Here you had a state emerge that was fully conscious of itself and was autonomous in relation to any prior or religious or social conditions. It was able to focus on implementing systems and processes in order to achieve specific outcomes. It was a period of rationalized systems, unified hierarchies, card indices, and regular reports. With Napoleon particularly, there was a tendency towards mechanization, which resulted from the application of technique to more or less human spheres of action. Technique and the technical mindset are revolutionary at heart. It desires to clear away the old and the traditional and the seemingly haphazard in favor of the rational, the efficient, and the standardized. It was an ideological process from the outset. The revolution also entailed the exertion and regrouping of all national energies. There was to be no more loafers, no more privileged persons, no more special interests. Everyone must serve in accordance with the strictures of technique. There was a move to systemize and standardize the law over those laws that were unwritten and variable and embedded in custom. Revolutionary France sought to be rational 
and thus began the use of technique as a form of the rational mastery of society. This began a shift from qualitative modes of thinking to the quantitative. What matters is that which can be measured and accounted for on the ledger sheet. As this revolutionary mindset begins to take hold, it is this technical, rational way of thinking about law, society, and government that paves the way for the increase in machine use. The proliferation of machines requires, first, a technical mindset that desires to standardize and increase efficiency. We also have to understand that the 1700s were a time of great optimism. This optimism allowed the technical mindset to flourish. They believed in their project that they were improving society through reason. There was also a diminished fear of evil. They believed in exploiting natural resources for the betterment of mankind. They believed that they were making the world a better place through their scientific discoveries and the growing use of machines. There was a belief in the inherent goodness of technique. Alul identifies five basic necessary factors for the transformation of a society into a technological society. One, there is a long incubation period of technical experience and gradual technical improvement that primes the pump for a tipping point. Two, population expansion. Three, there is a suitable economic environment. Four, there is a period of social plasticity. Five, the appearance of a clear technical intent. He argues that the fourth point, a time of great social change, which would have otherwise restrained and perhaps even squashed the other factors, was the most decisive of the, of the five. The social flux that enabled the technical system to emerge was the erosion of the Christian faith in the general culture life of society at the time in which the clear technical intent was also emerging. What this fraying of the Christian social fabric did was remove the social taboos surrounding machines and technical thinking in combination with a diminishment of natural social groupings around long-established communities. Christianity up to this point had ordered society around Christian aims. All other aspirations were secondary to these larger faith pursuits. Christian society was more important than the technical. As long as that moral order is stable, then anything new will have to be tested against that order. But once the Christian social order began to break down, the clear Christian intent of society was quickly, quickly replaced with a clear technical intent. In the sense, technique and the technical thinking were essentially sacrilegious in the Christian era. Alul describes the pre-technical society this way. The individual found livelihood, patronage, security, and intellectual and moral satisfaction in the collectives that were strong enough to answer all of his needs, but limited enough not to make him feel submerged or lost. They suffice to satisfy the average man who does not try to gratify imaginary needs if his position is fairly stable. Who opposes innovation if he lives in a balanced milieu, even though he is poor? This fact which is so salient in these three millennia of history that we know, is misunderstood by modern man who does not know what a balanced social environment is and the good he could derive from it. All of the obstacles that this balanced environment placed on technical proliferation disappeared at the time of the French Revolution. 
A systematic campaign was waged against all natural groups under the guise of a defense of the rights of the individual. For example, the guilds, the communes, and federalism were all attacked, this last by the Girondists. There were movements against the religious orders, against the privileges of Parliament, the university, and the hospitaliers. There was to be no liberty of groups, only of the individual. There was likewise a struggle to undermine the family. Revolutionary legislation promoted the disintegration. It had already been shaken by the philosophies and fervors of the 18th century. Revolutionary laws governing divorce, inheritance, and paternal authority were disastrous for the family unit to the benefit of the individual, and these effects were permanent in spite of temporary setbacks. Society was already atomized and would be atomized more and more. The individual remained the sole sociological unit, but far from assuring him freedom, this in fact invoked the worst kind of slavery. For an individual in an atomized society, all that is left is the individual and the state. The state is the sole authority, the highest authority. The state in this environment becomes omnipotent. This growth of the state is aided by this technical drive for standardization, for finding the one best way to do everything and anything. As you may have guessed, the primary actors in the breakdown of the old feudal and monarchical system, the urban bourgeoisie merchant and professional class, were the main drivers behind the introduction and proliferation of technical thinking, and with it the introduction of the machine. It was precisely because technique made the bourgeoisie money that they became so committed technique and machines. It has remained so this way ever since. The stewards of this class interest have shifted from the owners to the managers, but the impulse is the same. Their power is rooted in their unwavering commitment to the technical mindset. It was not as if there was not resistance to the introduction of this way of thinking and its corrosive atomizing effects on society, there was significant pushback. The implementation of technique and machines throughout society happened in part because Karl Marx rehabilitated technique in the eyes of the workers, who were opposed to technique in the 1800s because they bore all the hardships and none of the triumphs. He convinced the working class that they would not be liberated by the struggle against technique, but on the contrary, by technical means itself, which would automatically bring about the collapse of the bourgeoisie end of capitalism. This reconciliation of the masses to technique was decisive. Looked at this way, Marx enabled a psyop against the worker, allowing a bourgeoisie technical mechanized society and economy to be fully implemented. Instead of liberating the common worker and protecting him against the rapacious influence of the technically minded capitalist, Marx enabled them to be enslaved by the technical system. Because we now live with the fundamental myths of technical thinking, they seem to us to be just the way things are and have always been. They have become almost religious in nature. Take the myth of work, this idea that hard work is its own reward. Prior to the technical society, that was not the case. For pre-technical man and for historical man until a comparatively late date, Work was punishment, not a virtue. It was better to consume less than to have to do hard work. The rule was to work hard only as much as absolutely necessary in order to survive. And man, maximizing his own agency, 
use the utmost ingenuity to obtain a maximum of results from the minimum of means. What this meant in practice is that he lived in a society where there were few laws, few tools, few techniques, and all of them were honed over countless generations perfected for a multiplicity of situations. You applied your skills and used old means to solve new problems. The deficiency of the tool was compensated for by the skill of the worker. A man's talents could make his crude tools yield maximum results. Everything varied from man to man according to his gifts, whereas technique in the modern sense seeks to eliminate such variability. With every search for new tools and new techniques means the giving up of the pursuit of real skill. Just as societies are not interchangeable, so too ancient techniques remained part of the secret wisdom of a society. Technique in this context was subjective. The need for propaganda. The heading of this section gives away the answer, but why would people allow themselves to be subjected to a technical society? The answer is that technical society requires propaganda to make it function. The whole technical system is itself an ideology that is imposed onto reality and not one that emerges organically from reality. Thus, in order for people to accept modern technical living, they must be submerged constantly into a fog of propaganda. Now, we're not going to go too deeply into Alul's thoughts here, but enough to give you the extent of the propaganda problem within technical society. The purpose of propaganda is not to change our way of thinking. It is certainly not to elevate our thoughts. Rather, propaganda is meant to make us serve. In this case, we are convinced that we must serve the technical system. I'm going to be blunt. If you believe in progress or things like the rights of the individual or the value of capitalism for humanity, your thinking is a product of propaganda that is designed to make you serve the technical machine system. This is the system of the bourgeoisie. Today's representatives of this are the managers, the bureaucrats, the professional managerial class, the nowheres, the plastics, whatever label you use, this is their system and the main force of propaganda is aimed towards your dutiful participation in this system. These common presuppositions of bourgeois and proletarian are that man's aim in life is happiness, that man is basically good, that history develops in endless progress, and that everything is matter. Propaganda rests on the fundamental myths of our Western culture, that is our technical, mechanical society. In our society, the two great fundament, fundamental myths on which all other myths rest are science and history, that is progress, and based on them are the collective myths that are technical man's principal orientations. The myth of work, the myth of happiness, which is not the presumption of happiness, the myth of the nation, the myth of youth, and the myth of the hero. Propaganda builds on these basic presuppositions and expresses these basic myths. Any narrative that runs counter to these fundamental myths has a hard time getting any purchase with the general public. So when one builds one's messaging, it must be seen as moving with these primary mythic messages. They must, must always go in the direction of the myths. 
attempts at propaganda which would stress virtue over happiness and presents man's future as one that is dominated by austerity, hardship, and complication will lose out to messaging which emphasizes prosperity, progress, convenience, and personal autonomy. As noted above, technical society and with it propaganda wishes to isolate people, to treat them as individuals, to separate them not just from each other, but also from the past and the future. The propagandist does not want the individual thinking about the great questions of human life, its meaning, his obligation to God, and so forth. This constant present is actually achieved through an emphasis on current events. The propagandists want the isolated individual thinking continually about the latest happenings in entertainment, politics, and economics. Remember that when Alul wrote this, mass communication meant newspapers and radio predominantly. This focus on current events does not require the internet, a 24-hour news cycle, or social media. The proliferation of newspapers was enough. Propaganda starts with current events. If you want to get your own thoughts back, Step one is to stop paying attention to the news. To the extent the propaganda is based on the news, it cannot permit time for thought or reflection. One thought drives away the next. Old facts are replaced with new ones. Under the condition of propaganda, there is no thought. One just feels. Because of the deluge of information from the media, entertainment, news, work, the person compensates by forgetting what he has just seen or heard. In so doing, a man loses his sense of continuity. His life is disconnected and fragmented without a meaningful whole. He is lost and adrift on a sea of information. Eventually, the person simply accepts the prevailing worldview of the propagandist as the world. Whatever is in accord with the propaganda is good, and whatever ever cuts against it is bad. He is like a fish in water. He cannot see the water. Anything that alerts him to the water is then bad. He has a passive attitude. He is seized. He is manipulated. He is committed. He experiences what he is asked to experience. He is transformed into an object. The propaganda has control over the individual by means of a social force. This force has control over his inner life and he is deprived of himself. Why is this important? In this time of political upheaval, we need to understand that what happens within the Western technical society happens within that society. Our technique-based system, including rationally implemented forms of government like the American Constitution, are all part of this anti-traditional, technically-oriented social project. Classical liberalism, enlightenment liberalism, left liberalism are all the same thing. They all share the same fundamental stories. In order to gain purchase in the public realms of this social system, it must move with the primary cultural miss. When so-called conservatives make appeals to individual liberties like free speech, freedom of assembly, religion, or even the right to bear arms, they are supporting and drawing from the same set of myths that the left draws from when they want to end racism by means of a managed systems of quotas and reverse discrimination. They are like different denominations of the same religion. This is largely because both accept the world of technique and technical thinking. Alul puts it this way. 
Because of the myth of progress, propaganda must be associated with all economic, administrative, political, and educational development. Thus, the general trend towards socialization can neither be questioned nor overridden. The political left is respectable. The right has to justify itself before the ideology of the left, in which the rightists participate. All propaganda must contain and evoke the principal elements of the ideology of the left in order to be successful. This is why it always seems like the two options politically are fast liberalism and cautious liberalism, because within the myth system of the technical and scientific progress, those are your options. This is also why radical leftism, that is some form of Marxism, never seems to be rejected because Marxism is in line with the fundamental myths of Enlightenment society. A true right-wing option is not just out of bounds, but evil in that it threatens to undermine the very core myths of society. This is also why developing a true right-wing political program is so difficult because so many of those who see problems in the current system critique it mostly from within the system. They are looking to find the true heart of the West, the true heart of Enlightenment liberalism, but it gains traction only to the, to the degree that it never challenges the fundamental myths of society, especially those of individual autonomy or technical progress or the value of economic prosperity or even the value of hard work. This is not a denial that these voices don't exist or that you can't find them, but that they don't gain broad purchase because they do not adhere to the fundamental mythic structure of modern Western society, a mythic structure that is ideological and imposed upon us by propaganda and maintained by propaganda. It is this propagandistic nature of our society that suggests that perhaps the only path of recovery is some form of unplugging and separating oneself as an alternative society. The Essential Characteristics of Technical Society Since we are like a fish in water, what do we need to do to help ourselves see the water for what it is? So what are we looking for and how do we recognize it? Here are the basic characteristics of today's technical phenomenon. 1. Rationality. Technique is always the application of rationality. It is never organic. Any rationally conceived plan, solution, method, approach, system, and so forth is technical in nature. Whether that is applied to building rockets, running the government, or growing churches, these rational approaches are technical in nature. 2. Artificiality. Technique is opposed to nature. At its heart, it is ideological. Technique never emerges naturally or organically. It is always developed and imposed. It is the creation of an artificial system. Technique destroys, eliminates, and subordinates the natural world and makes it impossible to enter into a truly symbiotic relationship with the created world. 3. Automatism. Technique is always pursuing the one best way to do anything, whether that is a political system or running a Fortune 500 company or testing intelligence or teaching students. There is always a best way or a best practice for everything. Technique is always trying to achieve the most efficient way of doing anything. 4. Self-augmentation. 
technique now proliferates now almost without human intervention. One technique suggests the next. Modern man is so absorbed in techniques, so convinced of its superiority, that without exception he is oriented towards technical progress, which is social progress. Five, technical progress is non-reversible. Six, technical progress is always geometric in nature. Seven, monism. The technical phenomenon embraces all the separate techniques in order to form a single, seamless, technical whole. This is a progress of self-augmentation where techniques now depend upon and reinforce other techniques. The technical civilization is constructed by technique, for technique, and is exclusively technique. Technique has taken over the whole of civilization. The human being is forced to capitulate, to accommodate himself to techniques, and to not experience any personal feelings or reactions. The technical system becomes a form of propaganda itself, the fundamental belief. No technique is possible when men are free. Technique requires predictability and no less exactness and precision. It is necessary that technique prevail over the human being. The individual will no longer be able, materially or spiritually, to disengage himself from the technical society. Can the system be reformed? The short answer is no. It is what it is. As Alul details in his final book on the subject of technology, technique and technical systems don't care. Technique is neither good nor evil. It is ambivalent. You cannot go into the system and try to fix it in such that you end up with a more humane form of technique. This is why the man of destiny that many on the right hope for will not be able to rise to power and shape the system after his will, bending it towards the end goal of human flourishing, because the system is a technical system. Why can't the technical system be reformed? In part because of the four laws of technical ambivalence which Alul identified. First, all technical progress has its price. Second, at each stage it raises more and greater problems than it solves. Third, its harmful effects are inseparable from its beneficial effects. Fourth, it has a great number of unforeseen effects. As technique proliferates because of the fundamental faith in the technical system, there is a belief that the next round of technical reforms will finally get the system right, or the related belief that if we get our guy in to run things, the man of destiny or some such, that we will be able to finally reform the system. This is a false hope. Because of our fundamental orientation towards rationalism, there's a belief that we can fix the system. We can either add new systems or reform the current system. The one option that is never considered is to dismantle portions of the system or to cease using a particular technology. When techniques were still being developed cautiously and organically in the traditional Western social arrangements, with all of its constraints upon technical development, there was a time to watch how a new tool or technique affected a social group and simply stop using it if it seemed to bring too much harm. This option is closed to us today. Alul calls this a form of unreason. At every stage of technical implementation, the system grows increasingly more complex. Its good and bad effects continue to multiply and it becomes increasingly more susceptible to failure. 
Inefficiency makes the system more robust and better able to handle shocks. This is the difference between that old truck that you have been running for 25 years and a Formula One race car. It is the difference between an inefficient global supply chain that had buffers in the system, warehouses filled with inventory, and the highly efficient just-in-time delivery system that is wonderfully efficient but vulnerable to the slightest shock. It is why no reform of any governmental program ever works. You may solve one problem, but this will bring a multiplicity of new problems. But as we have seen, we are vested in keeping the system going in part because of unreason, in part because that unreason is fueled by a fog of propaganda. It is likely that the system will not be reformable without a significant shock to the system. It is too complex now for simple reforms. Get rid of all standardization? Get rid of all policy manuals? The whole empire of Western civilization, everything from churches to government to businesses to all participate in the mythology of technical process, progress. With increasing unreason, we press on, adding to it, introducing yet more devices, engaging in ever more risky researches in a social mania to somehow keep progress going. The one thing we never see, the one thing we seem incapable of doing is to say no. We are starting to play out an old story, rather an old set of stories that we stop taking to heart. The story of Adam and Eve, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With technical society, we have bitten from the apple and there is no going back. We cannot unknow what we know. We must live honestly with our sins, so to speak. And now, like Cain, sin crouches at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That did not end well for either Cain or his brother Abel. Finally, we are trying to build that tower to heaven, and it will likely end for us the same way it ended for them, with us scattered in the tower in ruins. There is no way to read Elul and not come in some way to be depressed about our current situation. Knowing is the first step to grappling with the world as it is, not as we would like it to be. There is no plan that will save us. All plans work to sustain the current system. At best, I think, the path is to unplug and trying to find ourselves again. Yet here I am, deeply enmeshed myself in this technical system, trapped and controlled by its necessities, using a computer to post writings to a mass media website. One hope I have is that there are values, values of faith, values of human community, things still uncorrupted by the system. These things can be found, nurtured, and fostered. Perhaps they will open a pathway to step away and unplug, to create refuges, from the technical system. In the meantime, let us all be mindful of how we use machines and how we are controlled by them, one step at a time.